Before we jump back into the book of Acts, I wanted to let you guys know, or maybe remind you if you already knew, that our 50th anniversary as a church is coming up in a few weeks. In December, we're going to celebrate our church. We've been around for 50 years. It's a long time. We're going to do two things on that weekend, the weekend from the 11th to the 13th. I'll start with the 13th. That's Sunday night, the 13th. On that Sunday, we're not going to have church in the morning. So Sunday the 13th, do not come to church in the morning. It's the day of the marathon. Go run if that's what you like to do. Uh, If you're like me, sleep in, enjoy it. And then come that evening, 6 p.m. at Reed Arena on campus, all of Grace Bible Church will gather. So all four campuses will have one big service. We're a church of about 5,000, so we're hoping everyone will come together. And as one big family, we can worship the Lord. So on that night, Sunday night, we're going to be looking forward to what God is going to do in in the future. We want your kids there. We want everyone there so we can all worship together. On the Friday before that, December 11th, we're going to have a banquet at the MSC in the big ballroom, and we're inviting everyone out. Um, We're going to talk about what God has done in the past. So we're going to talk about his faithfulness to us. It's going to be like literally a once in 50 years kind of event. So you don't want to miss it. We're going to have interviews with former pastors and missionaries. We're going to have videos. We're going to have testimonies. We're going to have a great dinner together. It's going to be a wonderful night of worship. The ticket prices are $40 per person, and you can register online or in the foyer this morning. But let me be very clear. We don't want that price to keep anyone away. So we have scholarships available. We will pay whatever's needed so that you can come. So we would love to have all of you there at our banquet as we celebrate Grace Bible Church. So please register either online or in the foyer today for the banquet. Registration is due 1122, so on Sunday the 22nd for that. But for the Sunday night thing, you don't have to register. Just come. We'd love to have you in Reed Arena as we celebrate what God's done in building grace. Okay, this morning we're going to look at Acts 17. So you can turn there, chapter 17. We're going to continue the story of the book of Acts. Now, I grew up as a child of the 80s. I was born in the mid-70s, but, but grew up in the 80s. And in the 80s, the, the rage, what everybody was talking about, was something called cold fusion. It was this weird technology where you could combine hydrogen at room temperature, and it would create helium and tons of energy. And so everyone was talking about it because it was the hope of the future. It could power your home or your car or your office for, like, no money. You didn't need fossil fuel. It didn't create anything radioactive. It was this great hope that we're supposed to have by now, at least according to Back to the Future. We're supposed to have Mr. Fusion reactors in the trunk of our cars. We're supposed to be riding down the street on hoverboards and flying DeLoreans. And none of that has happened, and I'm really disappointed about that. I really wanted the car with the fusion reactor in the trunk. I dreamed of that as a kid. I'm, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. Because I've lived long enough to know that in this world, in this life, there is often going to be a painful gap between theory and reality. Just ask the Dallas Cowboys this season. (laughs) They're owned by a guy worth $4.2 billion. You can buy a lot of talent for that kind of money. And they play in the greatest stadium ever built. AT&T paid them half a billion dollars just to put their name on it. They are by far the most valuable NFL franchise in the world. And yet they're two and six. They're losing again. They're proof that the connection between theory and reality can snap as easy as Romo's collarbone. Just Boom, snaps apart. 
We live in a world where theory and reality rarely line up. There's often this huge gap between them, whether you're talking about technology or football or your spiritual life. And so for many of us, as we look at our spiritual lives, there is this same huge gap between theory and reality when it comes to sharing our faith. We know the theory of sharing our faith. We, we know that we should do it. We know what to say. We know the gospel. We talk about it every single week here at Grace Bible Church. We spent the entire sermon on it last week. And it's a really simple message. Remember, what is the gospel? It's just Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so you can have eternal life as a free gift if you simply believe. That's an easy enough message that a five-year-old can grasp it. So we know the gospel, we understand the gospel, and we know we should share it. We talk about that all the time. We've talked about how the only reason God has left you on this planet is so you can share the gospel. Because everything else about your spiritual life, you will do better in heaven. Like worship, good this morning, better up there. Prayer, reading the Bible, serving other people, obeying God. You'll do all that better in heaven. The only reason God has left you here is so you can share your faith. Because in heaven, no one needs to know about Jesus. They already know him. So God has left you here on this earth for one purpose, to share the gospel. So we know the gospel and we know how important it is to share the gospel, but most of us are not doing it, at least not very often. There's this gap between the theory of sharing our faith and the reality of actually sharing our faith in our daily lives. Well, this morning, I want to help close that gap between the theory of sharing your faith and the actual reality of doing it by walking you through Acts chapter 17. So we're going to look at the story of Paul encountering the city of Athens and what he did in in this chapter in Athens. And we're going to learn from him five principles that can help us to close this gap between theory and practice so that we begin to share our faith like Paul did, to share it powerfully and effectively on a daily basis. Okay, so jump in with me. Let's pick up the story, chapter 17. We're going to start with verse 16 when Paul gets to Athens. So verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I will pause there for a moment. Let me give you a little background on the city 
of Athens in Paul's day. So 2,000 years ago, Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. It was known for philosophy. That's the first thing to know about ancient Athens. Now, its heyday as a center of philosophy was a few hundred years before Paul showed up when Socrates and Plato and Aristotle walked the streets. By the time Paul comes, philosophy had coalesced into the two schools of thought that Paul mentions. Epicureans, they would say, enjoy life. Stoics, they would say, endure life. So they're very different schools of thought, but they're going to have the same response to Paul's message at the end of the chapter. We'll see that in a little bit. So Athens was known for philosophy, but second, it was known for idolatry. Idols were everywhere in the city of Athens. It was said in ancient Athens that it was easier to find an idol than a human. In the market where Paul did most of his preaching in this chapter, there were idols literally to every god. So full-size, life-size statues dedicated to Apollo, Hecate, Hermes, Zeus, Athena, Justice, Prosperity. Every single god in their pantheon had an idol. In fact, they eventually ran out of gods. And so what did they build? An altar to an unknown god. Because maybe they figured, well, there's one we don't know. So let's go ahead and build them an altar here. So idolatry was just part of life in Athens. In fact, it it was so integrated into life that if you wanted to go to like city hall and do government business, you had to sacrifice to an idol. And if you wanted to conduct a transaction with another business, like enter into a contract, you had to sacrifice to an idol. And if you went to a show, like entertainment, they would sacrifice to an idol. Idolatry was like breathing in Athens. Everyone did it. And so that leads us to our first principle. If you want to close this gap between the theory and the reality of sharing your faith, then you need to learn from Paul. If you want to share your faith like him, like a pro, first principle for you is that you got to cultivate compassion rather than anger or apathy. Because it tells us in verse 16 that as Paul saw all of this idolatry, he was provoked. That word in Greek, it means to, to be troubled, to be upset, to be sickened. So Paul looks around, he sees all this idolatry, and he's upset by it, he's sickened by it because he sees how it is blinding and enslaving people. If you read accounts of ancient idolatry, it really was sickening, what went with it. And it enslaved people and crushed them and became a burden to them. And so Paul sees it and it breaks his heart, it really upsets him. Now, how do people respond when they see something in the world that upsets them? Well, most people tend towards one of two extremes. They tend to to run towards anger or run towards apathy. That's our natural human response. So we either we see something bad in the world, something evil in the world, and we either get really angry and we want to fight it, or we get apathetic and want to check out. It's our fight or flight mechanism. You either get mad or you get lost. Okay, that's the natural tendency of the human heart. Mine, of those two, we all have one that we tend towards. Mine is apathy. So I look around and I, I read the news and I tend to get really disturbed by it and really brokenhearted. So I see all the, the poverty and I see the racism and I see the slavery and the exploitation and then Paris happens and I read about that and I read about Beirut and it just breaks my heart. I, I can't deal with all of that pain. And so my temptation is to turn on Netflix and tune out the world. 
Now, there is a place for turning on Netflix. You you can't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders at all times. So it's okay to rest. But if our response to every amount of evil and suffering we see in the world is just to check out and turn on Netflix, then we failed. Because we got to understand, Satan loves either of those options at the end. He's happy if you get angry, and he's happy if you get apathetic. So if you get angry, if if you give in to anger when you see evil in the world, then that's going to drive people away from the church, and Satan loves that. If instead you give in to apathy when you see evil in the world, then Satan has put you on the bench, and he's happy with that. Anger and apathy, they're equally bad. God is calling us to something better, compassion. That's Paul's response. So you notice Paul is provoked. He's sickened when he sees idolatry, but he does not launch a political protest or go boycott someone. And on the flip side, he doesn't go down to the local pub and drown his sorrows. Now, what does he do? He gets busy sharing the gospel. He shares the gospel with everyone who will listen because he loves those people. He wants to free them from the darkness and enslavement of idols. So Paul responds in compassion, and that's what God is calling us to do too. So let's define that word. Compassion means sympathetic concern for someone who is suffering. And we've got to understand, compassion is not just a feeling or an emotion. It's an action. Biblical compassion comes alongside of those who are suffering so you can help them. You don't just feel bad for them. You don't just hit like on Facebook. You come alongside of them. And you seek to help them. That's compassion. That's the kind of compassion Paul has for the Athenians. It's a sympathetic concern that leads to action. But what I really want you to notice is sympathetic concern even for those who brought suffering upon themselves. You know, as Paul has compassion for the Athenians, who had brought slavery of idolatry upon the Athenians? The Athenians. They made a free choice to worship idols and bring into their lives all the pain and suffering that that created. And yet Paul still has compassion for them. And I think that's a really important thing for us to get clear because we have this misunderstanding often in the church that God wants us to have compassion for the victim but vengeance for the perpetrator. So Paris, what happened a few days there? We feel compassion for the victims, but we want vengeance towards the perpetrators. That makes perfect sense from a human perspective, but that's not God's economy. That's not how God works. He wants us to have compassion for all people. Because at the end of the day, all human beings are both victim and perpetrator. We all do bad things. So God wants us like Paul, just like Paul towards the Athenians. They had made the choice to destroy their own lives, and yet Paul had compassion for them. It's just like Jesus hanging on the cross. What did he say to God? Father, forgive them. These, These guys right here who aren't victims, the ones who just nailed me to the cross, God, forgive them. Have compassion on these men. That's what God is calling us to have is compassion towards victim and perpetrator alike. Compassion that's not just a gut feeling, but that leads to action. That like Paul, we would go out and share the good news of Jesus with everyone who will listen. God is calling us to have compassion for all mankind, the good ones and the evil ones. But it's easy to talk about compassion. I'm guessing I probably haven't surprised you this morning yet. I mean, other than the football joke, because I don't ever do that. You, You know that we're supposed to have compassion for people. The real question is, how do we grow it? It's easy to talk about compassion, but how do you actually develop compassion in your soul? I'm going to give you two things to think about. Two ways to grow compassion in your heart. Number one, pray for it. 
Ask God to give you his love for the lost, his compassion for those who are evil, because you can't make it. Compassion isn't natural for you. Anger and apathy, those are natural. If you do what comes naturally, you're going to get angry or be apathetic. Compassion is supernatural. It's something God must give you. It's a fruit of his spirit. So pray and ask God to give it to you. The beautiful thing, remember Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. And we always qualify that. Well, ask and you shall receive if you're asking for something that God wants you to have. But the beautiful thing is God wants you to have compassion. So you know this is a prayer he will say yes to. But it may take time. All good things in life take time. God wants you to pray for compassion over and over and over again. So I'm going to challenge you. Will you please consider praying and asking God to give you his compassion for the lost? Will you pray for that at least every week? From now on, I'd love for it to become a habit in your life. You're doing that until you're 100 years old. Pray and ask God, please give me your heart for the lost. Help me to love people, whether they're the victim or the perpetrator, like you love them. So pray and ask God to give it to you because compassion is only from God. But there is something you can be doing to help make your heart fertile and ready to receive God's compassion. And that's my second step for you. Remind yourself as often as you see evil in this world, there but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go I. That's my motto for you this morning. A little phrase for you to memorize. That phrase is saying is that all of the bad things you see people do in the world, they're not doing those bad things because they're worse than you. And you're not avoiding those bad things because you're better than them. The only reason that stuff isn't happening in your life is the grace of God. Okay, so Paul never forgot that. Paul, towards the end of his life, he wrote a book called First Timothy. And in First Timothy, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is after Paul's planted churches all over the world. And he looks back at his life and he remembers, I was a murderer. So the whole idolatry thing in Athens, that's pretty small. I killed people. And I would have still been doing it if God's grace hadn't gotten hold of me. Paul never let himself forget that he was no better than any other person on earth. The only reason that he had become a good man was because of the grace of God in his heart transforming him. So let us remember that. We are no better than anyone else out there. An example from my own life, as I get older and see more about the pain and suffering and how hard life is, I have come to find much more compassion for those who are alcoholics. Because now as life has gotten harder, I feel like I'm beginning to understand, yeah, I would really like to hit the escape button on life from time to time, and alcohol would be an easy way. Give me a few hours of blissful ignorance towards the pain of this world. So why haven't I? When so many others have, why haven't I? Well, it's not because I'm better. It's because God has been gracious to me. He gave me parents who taught me well. They taught me about the pain and suffering that alcoholism could bring in my life. He's surrounded me with friends who lift me up on really bad days, especially my spouse. He's given me accountability from other men who ask me every week how I'm doing. The only reason I have not become an alcoholic is because of the grace of God. It's not because I'm better than alcoholics. That applies to every sin in the world. Murder, theft, rape, exploitation, homosexuality, all that. If you're not giving into those sins, it's not because you're better than the people who are. It's because God is gracious to you. 
And so every time you look out in the world or you open the newspaper and you see something that troubles you, that disturbs you, that sickens you, I want your natural reaction to become thinking this phrase, this motto, reminding yourself, there but for the grace of God go I. That would be me if it wasn't for God's grace. The guys who killed people in Paris, there but for the grace of God go any of us. They're not a different species than you. They're human beings just like you. There but for the grace of God go I. So we remind ourselves of that while we pray for God to give us compassion. We're doing this every day, every week, and God is growing within our hearts compassion, and that compassion will fuel a desire to share the gospel. So that's the first step. If you want to close that gap between theory and reality of sharing your faith, you've got to grow in compassion. Second principle we're going to find as we continue the story. Let's pick it up in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man, therefore having over look the times of ignorance God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead let's stop there we're going to find the next few principles in this speech that Paul gives on Mars Hill the name of the Areopagus in Athens the first principle is going to come from the end I want you to notice where Paul leads this conversation. The very end of the speech, he ends on Jesus. And that's the second principle for you. If you want to share your faith effectively, you've got to focus on Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't actually get to name Jesus because in the next verse, the crowd shouts him down. They're done at this point. But he's leading. You can tell clearly he's talking about Jesus in verse 31. That's where he's taking the conversation is to Jesus. He does the same thing at the beginning of the chapter to a very different audience. Look at chapter 17, verse 2. He's in a different city called Thessalonica, and he's talking to Jews. And here's what Paul says, verse 2. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So you see that whether he's talking to Jews or to Gentiles, Paul leads the conversation to Jesus. And that's the good news for us. The second principle is really the good news because it tells us that this whole sharing your faith thing is really, really easy. It's really, really easy. You don't have to know a whole lot of theology or Bible or Old Testament or any of that. You just gotta know Jesus. Just talk about Jesus and you win. So whether Paul's talking to Jews or Greeks, he's leading them to Jesus. He's telling them who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for the world and for him. And that's the gospel. That's, that's it. It really is that simple. This is not rocket science when you think about sharing your faith. It's easy enough that kids can do it. Again, I'll put the two points of the gospel right here. If you don't want to use your own words, just memorize these. If you can say this, you got it. Two lines. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead so we can have eternal life if we simply believe. 
That's it. If you lead the conversation to Jesus, then you've done it. You've succeeded. And so keep it, keep it focused on Jesus. Whatever the conversation is, look for some opportunity to talk about who Jesus is or what Jesus has done in your life. Talk about Jesus and, and you've done what God wants you to do. You don't have to know all that other stuff. Just keep it about Jesus. Keep it simple. Okay, so second principle. You can close that gap by no longer being intimidated by evangelism. Sounds like this thing that pastors do. Everyone does it. So simple. Just talk about Jesus, and we're good. The third principle that you, you glean from this passage, it's interesting. Paul is going to lead both audiences, Jews and Greek philosophers, to Jesus, but he's going to do it in, in different ways. So you may have noticed that to the Jews, what we just read at the beginning of the chapter, what did he use to lead them to Jesus? The Old Testament, because they love the Old Testament, so, so they know it really well. So he's going to use their Old Testament to lead them to Jesus. But then he's talking to the philosophers into the chapter, and he doesn't quote the Bible at all. No Bible quotes. Who does he quote? A philosopher, because that's what they love. That's what they trust is philosophers. So Paul uses their philosophers to lead them to Jesus. And you learn the third principle. You really got to get to know people. If you want to share your faith well, you've got to get to know the person you're talking to because people are not carbon copies of each other. We are all unique. We have our own unique beliefs and values and life experiences and worldview that shapes reality. And if you want to share Jesus with someone, you've got to get to know what they believe, what they value, what they care about. And so my encouragement for you is that when you're trying to share your faith, you will go far if you'll begin with questions. Just ask some questions. Most of the time when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, I'm going to end up letting them speak more than me. Even though I'm the one who knows Jesus and, and they really need to know Jesus, much more effective if I let them talk first and most. Because as I get to know them, first of all, that's just a nice way to treat people. If all you're doing is talking about yourself, you look like a jerk. So get to know them. Let them know that you genuinely care about them. You want to know them as an individual, as a person. And so you ask them questions about what do you believe? What do you think about God? What do you think about religion? What are your hopes for life? Where do you hope you are in 10 years? What do you fear? What do you think about what happened in Paris this weekend? You have kids? What are your hopes for your kids? What are your fears for your kids? What are your values? You just start asking them questions and you get to know them. They know that you care about them, but you also find out what their, what their needs are, what their fears are. And once you know what a person needs, what a person fears, then you get to speak into their life and you get to show them how Jesus meets that need. Because that's a, that's a good news of Jesus. Whether you're talking about a Syrian refugee on a boat or a billionaire in a penthouse in Manhattan, they have different needs that all have the same solution. Jesus. Both of them need Jesus, and that's really all they need. And so you get to know what their specific needs are, and then you show them how Jesus meets their needs, and they'll listen to that. So if you want to share your faith effectively, you've got to really get to know people. Ask him questions. Spend time listening before you spend time talking. Fourth principle that we pick out from this passage, if you want to close this gap between the theory and the reality of sharing your faith, you've got to be ready to give some evidence. I don't know how much you know about Mormonism. It was founded a little less than 200 years ago by a man named Joseph Smith. And in Mormonism, you will find some things that are a little hard to believe. 
a little hard to swallow. And Smith knew that. And so he quoted God as saying, here's what you do when you find Mormonism hard to accept. Smith said, God told him, you must ask if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. So you discern the truth of Mormonism by waiting for a feeling, an emotion in your gut. I want to be real clear. Your faith does not work that way. Christianity is not based on a feeling you get in your gut. It's based on evidence. It's based on evidence. There are mountains of evidence for our faith. So I just want to be clear. I am a Christian not because of some feeling I get, but because I have looked at the universe and I have gathered all the evidence I can from history and literature and science and human experience and psychology. All the experiences I have had, I firmly am convinced that Christianity is the best explanation for all the available evidence. That's why I'm a Christian. Not because I had some feeling in my gut. That could just be indigestion. (laughs) I believe in Jesus because when I gather all the evidence from life and the universe, he is the best explanation that fits all the pieces together. That's why there are so many great scholars in the history of the human race who have also been Christians. That you look at the list, Augustine, Da Vinci, Descartes, Newton, Pascal, C.S. Lewis, Francis Collins, the guy who found human DNA and discovered it. They were all Christians. Why? Because they were persuaded that the God of the Bible was the best explanation for all the available evidence. And so what that means is that you don't ever need to be embarrassed of your faith. You are not a fool for believing in Jesus. You're not a simpleton. No one pulled the wool over your eyes or deceived you. You have embraced a faith that is entirely reasonable and that is, in fact, the best and most logical explanation for the universe as we perceive it. And so what I want to encourage you to do is discover some of the evidence so that you can share it with people who are seeking truth. You don't need to become an expert. You don't have to memorize a whole lot of data, a whole lot of theology, a whole lot of apologetics. I just want you to discover a little of the evidence that's out there that supports your faith so that when you're talking with someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, you can tell them why you believe in him. Okay, so where do you go to find that evidence? Well, first place, easiest place, I wrote down a a short article about two or three pages a year ago that lists out all of the best evidence for the resurrection. Because if you can prove to somebody that Jesus rose from the dead, you're golden. If he rose from the dead, then we're done. That's it. Okay, so uh, evidence for the resurrection, easiest way to get that, just go to our website, grace-bible.org. There's a search bar, type resurrection evidence resurrection evidence hit enter first item that comes up will be reasons why we believe that jesus really rose from the dead lots of good evidence there it's only like two pages you can read it quickly and get a sense of why it's reasonable to believe in christianity so just resurrection evidence on the website if you're willing to give some more time to this pursuit read more than just a couple pages the two best books that i know that are out there that are real accessible easy to to get your mind around the reason for god by tim keller excellent book, or Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I'll put these up on Twitter and Facebook here in the next few days with the links so you can go get those books. 
Okay, so really good resources. Learn some of the evidence so that you can share it with other people. When they ask you, why do you believe in Jesus? Are you a fool? You can tell them, no, here's the evidence and walk them through it. It's been interesting. If you read that resurrection evidence, I have not yet ever, I mean ever in my life, sat down and spoken with an atheist, which I've done many times, who's been able to refute the evidence. At the end of the day, they just don't want to believe and the conversation ends. You don't need a lot of evidence to show them. It's reasonable to believe in Jesus. Okay, so that's point number four. Finally, fifth principle. If you want to close the gap between the theory and reality of sharing your faith, you've got to define success correctly. Now let's look at how Paul's gospel goes. Let's pick up the story in verse 32. As he finishes sharing the gospel, or actually gets interrupted, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Aeropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. I think sometimes the reason that we don't share the gospel with other people is because we're afraid of failure. We're afraid that we're going to get the words wrong and we're going to stumble over it or we're afraid that we don't know enough yet so we can't talk about it yet or we're afraid that they're going to reject us and we're going to look like a fool or they're going to say, hey, I don't really want to ever talk to you again. We fear that, that failure, that rejection, and so we don't share. And, and that fear comes out of a misunderstanding of what success is. So when you go to share your faith, what is success? Well, if you define success as convincing people to believe in Jesus, then Paul didn't have a good day. So a few people believe, but everyone else laughed him out. He never got to speak at Mars Hill again. He's, they're done. They don't want to listen to him again. Why? Because he talked about resurrection, and all Greek people are too smart to believe in the resurrection. They, they laugh. It's just ridiculous to them. So they laugh him out of the place. That's a bad day, but actually that's not really a bad day because remember what happened during Paul's first missionary journey. We studied that a couple weeks ago. He goes into Antioch and they kick him out of the city. He goes into Lystra to share his faith and they stone him and leave him for dead. That's a bad day. So if you define success in sharing your faith as convincing people to accept Jesus, then you're going to have a lot of bad days. But that's not success because we can't convince anyone to accept Jesus. Only God can do that. Jesus was really clear about that. In John 6, he told us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God is the only one who can save. You can't save people. That's not your job. You don't have the power to save someone. And so success is not convincing people to believe in Jesus because only God can do that. Success for you is showing up. That's success. If you show up and talk about Jesus, God is pleased with you. The results are up to him. So if you step into your friend's life when when he's suffering, when she is in pain, and you tell them about Jesus, the moment you have finished telling them about Jesus, God is incredibly pleased with you. You have succeeded. That's it. That was your part. Now, what happens next? What happens the moment you close your mouth? That's up to God. He can save them in that moment, or, or he may wait. Often it takes years of sharing the gospel with someone before they're ready to believe. But it doesn't matter because the results are in God's hands. All that God expects of you is that you show up. It's much easier to share the faith when we define success accurately. You have pleased God if you show up and open your mouth. Just tell someone about Jesus and you have succeeded. He's pleased with you. 
So as we look at this list, a lot of things on the board. How do we close this gap between the theory and the reality of sharing our faith? How do we begin to share Jesus like Paul did, like a pro? Well, first of all, we've got to grow compassion in our hearts. We do that by asking God for it. We do that by reminding ourselves, but for the grace of God, go I. I'm no better than anyone else. We close the gap by focusing on Jesus. Just talk about Jesus a lot, and you will become a more evangelistic person. We close the gap by getting to know people, genuinely caring about people, entering their lives, finding out what they believe, what they value, what they care about. We close the gap by learning some evidence so that we understand that Christianity is not a leap in the dark. It is an incredibly reasonable faith. And we close the gap by defining success accurately. We've succeeded the moment we show up and open our mouth and tell someone about Jesus. That's a lot of principles. I hope you'll grab some of those and apply them to your life. But that is so much that I worry that if you left the room now, you'd just be overwhelmed. Five principles. That's like five things to forget. So I want to give you one. I want to end with one thing this morning to help you to close the gap between the theory and the reality of sharing your faith. I'm going to give you a tool. I want to share with you a video that Crew made a few years ago that they have now gone back and customized. This last week, they customized the video for our church. And so at the end of the video, I'm going to give you the link. You can write it down. It's an unbelievably powerful, beautiful, profound way to tell the story of Jesus so that someone can see what what it is we believe about Jesus. I'm going to show you this video, and then I'm going to give you the link on the screen. And my goal here, really simple, I want you to take that link, and I want you to send it to a friend or a family member or a coworker who does not yet believe in Jesus. And I want you to send them this link, and it doesn't have to be this huge thing. You just send them the link, and you say, here is, is a video that summarizes what I believe. I would love to know what you think. What do you think of this video? It's so non-offensive. Just tell me, what do you think of this? And the video, if they watch the video to the end, it will give them lots of information and opportunities to connect with Southwood so that they can come here, so they can get the gospel, so that they can grow in their faith. But the most important connection they'll make is with you. So I want you to send this out. Let me show you the video so you can have a sense of this tool so that you can use it this week to share Jesus with somebody who doesn't yet know him. You. Look at your eyes. Look at them. Speckled. Colorful. Each one unique. And I created every one of them. I created everything. The universe. And you. I gave you your personality. I made you pure. Complex. Every day, I give you life. I love you. But something happened. You cheated on me. You didn't trust me. You sinned. You cut yourself off from me. And although you're still alive, slowly dying so you looked for other things to fill the void but nothing works 
faster. And it separates us more and more. destroyed, but to know me, so I became one of you, a fragile creation, I was tempted, but I never sinned, I came to save you, you have so many sins, and they have a cost, someone has to die, you me. So I took on your sin and traded in my life for yours. And I died in your place. Because I love you. Then follow me so if you can go to this link you can just write this down it's our own link grace-southwood.watchthinkchat.com that will take them to that video which will end with information uh, in for our church connections to people here at our church the ministries of this church so that your friend can get connected to what god is doing here So just send them this link, grace-southwood.watchthinkchat.com. I'm planning on sending it to a friend of mine and just saying, hey, what do you think of this? It's similar to what we talked about. I'd just like to get your input on it. He doesn't yet know Jesus. I hope this will help him to see why I believe. So I encourage you to write that down and send it. I will post all of these resources, this video, um, the books that I talked about earlier, the article I talked about earlier on Twitter and Facebook today and throughout the week so that you can get those resources, so that you can get ready to share your faith, to close that gap between the theory and the reality of of sharing Jesus. I want to go and I want to ask God now that he'd give us his compassion for the lost and help us to share Jesus with them. Heavenly Father, we are... We're so grateful that we have good news to tell people. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of a world that's full of pain and suffering, that we can tell people that there is hope, that there is love that doesn't disappoint, that there is hope in life after death, that there is a solution to evil and to sin. 
And Father, on this weekend that much of the world spends grieving over the events in Paris and Beirut and around the world, they, they look at these events and it fills their souls with, with hopelessness and with despair because they don't yet know Jesus. They don't yet know that a better world is coming where all of the evil things and all of the bad things will be undone. Lord, we pray that you would get hold of them, that you would open their eyes to, to help them to see that there is a solution in your Son. Father, we pray that you would go before us. We do not pray for one or two people to come to know Jesus, but billions, Lord, that the the population of this planet would come to bow the knee before Jesus and believe that he is your son who died for them and rose from the dead. Father, we pray that you would use us, that you would take away our fear and our selfishness, our anger and our apathy, and that you would fill our hearts with your compassion for the lost. We pray that you would fill our lips with Jesus, that we would be speaking about him with the people that we encounter at work, at school, in our neighborhoods. I pray that we would tell them about the good news that Jesus loves them. I pray that we would use this video, that we would use evidence for the resurrection, that whatever it is, that we would take these opportunities to share the good news that you love them so much that your son died for them. I pray, Father, that you would save this world through Jesus Christ and that you would use us towards that end. We thank you for your son who has given us life, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.